somebody gave me a copy of like selected works of Emily Dickinson. Like it's an old book. Oh, It was like a, a Christmas gift and they were super happy to hand it over to me. I opened it up and do you know <gasps> what? Oh no. Commas. It was filled with commas, not a dash to be seen. No. <laughs> it's like screaming. And I was like, I don't think we're friends anymore. <laughs> it was just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Get it away from me. <laughs> So, uh, what, what podcast is this again? Because, like, I'm just a very busy person and I forget what yeah, we do. I'm a very busy woman and I haven't got all day. What could <laughs> this possibly be? Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, I remember. One second. I've got it written down here. This is, <laughs> according to my calendar, Edicts on Edicts. A podcast about Emily Dickinson, the time-traveling American sapphic sapphic in time because it's like emily and lavinia so they need like a cute like tag team i'm gonna guess that like the bill and ted's excellent adventure reference fully flew over your head yeah sorry like, yeah i'm too young that's but, fine but when the gazebo gets hit by lightning and like this purple lightning is like traveling up and down it like that's bill and ted's excellent adventure <laughs> <laughs> oh is it really yeah I was dying laughing, being like, why the fuck did they reference that? Also, excellent choice. The deranged person who I'm guessing is Elena Smith who picked that, beautiful. (laughs) It's so good. I think I have actually seen Bill and Ted, but I think I think I was very Which one? There's like three of them now. I don't know. All I like in my head, they go to hell. Do they? Am I am I misremembering it? This is actually, it's actually the single most convoluted form of foreshadowing ever. Yeah, no way. I think it's Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Okay. I think I saw that one because they, because they go up, they go against the Grim Reaper, I think. Oh, they do. Wow. Yeah, they do. I did not see that one. There you go. Wow. I remember some of it. It was, came out in 1991 and I was born in 93. So wow. Wait, it's partially a spoof of the seventh seal. Dear God. <laughs> like <laughs> who in early 90s America was clamoring for Bergman parodies? Uh enough people <sighs> that it got made. So and fantastic. This is episode seven of season three, The Future Never Spoke, written by Z Way and Elena Smith, and directed by Heather Jack. Yes. This episode was the first one that sparked joy for me in this season. <laughs> wow. Um, I just liked deep. it so much. Yeah, like, it's, it's uh, so good. All right. It starts with Emily looking over a letter that Higginson has sent to her because he, again, takes no responsibility for the troops that he commands and instead, instead just writing to this woman. Then Lavinia comes in and tells her that Maggie is off. Their mother is not moving from bed and Emily has to go collect water. We then get Sojourner Truth and Betty talking about dating during the Civil War, which seems very similar to dating in the middle of a pandemic, as in there's no good time to do it, but you do it anyway. Sue and Emily have an orchard scene 2.0 where they confront each other 
I have some thoughts about Sue's behavior in this scene that we can get to. And then Emily and Lavinia sit in the gazebo, cry over their respective hardships, and travel into the future. And we go to 1950s America and meet famous American poet Sylvia Plath. Uh, At the same time, Henry and Higginson finally have their confrontation over Higginson's bullshit. Emily Mm -hmm. learns what her legacy in the future will be. And Mr. and Mrs. Dickinson get high. They do, yeah. That's kind of the episode to me. The Dickinsons getting high is one of the, we'll get to it, but oh my God, I fucking loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I love this episode. Like, I was saying, if I were to like pick an episode as like the quintessence of Dickinson, I think this is it. Like This does hit like a lot of the beats that are familiar yeah, to us. Um, but it's like familiar, but also their peak to me. Like... It's deranged, yeah, it's hilarious, it's, oh, it's so good. And it, it it has a kind of similar thing. So, like, this is another one where Emily meets another writer who mm-hmm. kind of informs her thinking about herself and about her situation and her yeah. writing. Um, and I think the mechanic of, like, sending them into the future was really good. Um, so good. <laughs> it's just really fun and interesting. Um, I think that the other thing I really liked about it was um, that it was Emily and Lavinia. And I love yes. that they actually spent some time together properly mm-hmm. in the episode. Mm-hmm. And this trip in the gazebo gives Emily that chance to have that heart to heart with Lavinia about loving Sue, basically. Yes. Yeah. Like we could talk about like the goofiness of the episode, but I think there are two things that like elevate it above just being funny um and one of them is that talk between Lavinia and Emily where basically she comes out to someone for the first time openly yeah besides Sue I suppose but she has articulated it to a family member what I think is interesting in that though is that it's clear that Emily had never thought of herself as a lesbian if you see what I mean yes like the the idea of being a lesbian is one that is familiar to Sylvia Plath, but mm. is not familiar to to Lavinia or to Emily, even though Emily, I think Emily knows she's queer deep down. Yes. But I don't think she would artic- had ever had the kind of language to label and articulate it. Well, it's similar to when we talked about um, the Patricia Highsmith stuff of season two, where like they're operating in this register. They just didn't have the words. Mm. And so that the time traveling device gives them that vocabulary that we have now, or like a version of the vocabulary that we have now, so that she can articulate it to herself within the context of the show. So mm. yeah, so I, I just really liked the time travel bit, and I think that's the main thing. So mm-hmm. should we just start there, and we can honestly, talk about the other bits. I spent most of the episode when it would jump back to the other storylines being like, no, go back to the time travel stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. Like, I know that we have to do other things, but go back to the time travel. (laughs) I would love a spinoff show where Emily does just travel through time. And maybe that would be, they could like explain the fact that she wasn't seen 
that much in Amherst mm. by the fact that she was literally traveling. She's just time traveling. <gasps> oh my God. See. I've got such a good idea. She should be on Doctor Who and she should be the doctor's companion. <laughs> Why can't she just be the doctor? No, because the doctor. No, I don't she know. She can't be the doctor, doctor because the. Okay, you don't understand then. She can't be the I doctor. Don't. The doctor is already a character in their own right. Not okay. just anyone can be the doctor. However, <laughs> Emily Dickinson would be an excellent doctor's companion see i was coming out of this show thinking like i would watch plath (laughs) i I don't know i feel like i mean so this is one of the other things right so they travel back in time and they they encounter sorry yes they travel forward in time by 100 years god i'm getting so confused um and they're shocked by the state of their house and the fact that there yeah. are motor cars and, and sprinklers and, and sprinklers, which is that great bit where they're running by the house and all the sprinklers go off. And they're like, ah, what's that? But you would, you'd be like, what the fuck? Water's coming out of the ground. Like what? Uh-huh. <laughs> like, it would just be really shocking. Right. Um, so but yeah. Weird. And then they can't get in their own house because it's now like locked up. Kind of. Yeah. And they encounter Sylvia Plath and, they kind of go into the house with Sylvia and have this long encounter with her. And I think um, one of my favorite bits of that is where they go up to Emily's room and Sylvia ends up saying like, Oh, she was so depressed. She was such I a like shut in. Like she had a miserable life. Like Emily Dickinson was the original sad girl. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It. And what I love is like, Emily's there. Like I don't recognize myself in that. Like that's not, yeah. That's not me. Like, I'm not. And I think that what's lovely about it is, like, it's it's nice that even though Emily has been through a lot and she maybe is in denial to a certain extent, it's, mm. she's not wrong. Like, she's not the sad girl. Yeah. Like, she's not depressed in the way that, like, Sylvia Plath had mental health issues. Yeah, exactly. And actually, one of the things in the interviews with Elena Smith, where she talked about the show when she was trying to pitch it, is, like, she would bring up, like, oh, yeah, I'm making a show about Emily Dickinson. And people's responses would be either, oh, yeah, she was so depressed, or when did she kill herself? And, like... (laughs) She would be like, it's no, like, Emily Dickinson died of natural causes. Yeah, like, um, and, and I think that's one of the things is that the other thing is when you come to her poetry, come to Emily's poetry, like, yes, a lot of it is concerned with death and grief mm-hmm. and very heavy things. Yeah. Um, but there's there really is like a very, in, very playful streak to her work and mm-hmm. and very joyful elements to some of her poems yeah. like like even the one we had last week i mean which one was it the um a little madness in the spring a little madness it? in the spring yeah yeah mm-hmm. like even that's just like a lovely little playful riff mm-hmm. on springtime i was going to say um, i feel like her her poetry is very very seasonal like very linked to the seasons. It is, yeah. In that it has its, to borrow a phrase, peaks and troughs in the sense that there are very heady, like happy, almost delirious poems. And then there are like the sad poems that deal with grief and death and loss. And But her story has been co-opted to be like, no, no, no. She was actually a shut-in weirdo who was depressed all she did was wear white and cry. But it's like, where did that come from originally? Like, because because I, I mm. don't think that's what the people who knew her... No. I think the people that knew her would say that she was intense. 
Yes. Um, and I think that they would say she was mysterious. Yes. Um, and maybe distant right. sometimes. But mm-hmm. but when did people start saying, oh, Emily's depressed? And like, she was a shut-in and she was cra- almost kind of this, she was crazy sort of. Yeah. I wonder when I think, that began. I think it actually does start while she's alive because she does you know, later on, I think it's in her late thirties where she starts leaning into the whole, like, I'm not going to leave my room idea. And I wanted to pull out, um, I I wanted to pull out this quote from Sue for Emily's obituary that just says, as she passed on in life, her sensitive nature shrank from much personal contact with the world and more and more turned to her large wealth of individual resources for companionship, sitting thenceforth, as someone said of her, in the light of her own fire, not disappointed with the world, not an invalid until within the past two years, not from any lack of sympathy, not because she was insufficient of any mental work or social career, her endowments being so exceptional, but the mesh of her soul, as Browning calls the body, was too rare, and the sacred quiet of her own home proved the fit atmosphere for her worth and work. Yeah, see, that's just lovely, isn't it? And I think mm. that that catches that captures the truth of the matter, surely, like, which is that Emily retreated from the from the world because her gaze was turning inward to to her interior world, to perhaps the collective unconscious that we all experience. That her connection to something and her imagination was so strong that that's where she wanted to be. But even while that was happening, like people don't understand that even while she was alive. So they're just like, oh, she's crazy. But people never understand like, it's like, to quote our Lord and Saviour, it's like what Jesus said about, like, a prophet oh. is never recognised in his own. I was waiting for town. the punchline. <laughs> no, I'm literally <laughs> quoting Jesus Christ. Like, he said a prophet is never recognised in his in his own town, right? And and that's because people didn't see Emily for what she was. They saw her as the, as the Dickinson girl. Yeah. Like the odd child of Edward Dickinson. And then especially if you like think about her siblings, like you could write off the entire Dickinson family as just being like a bunch of oddballs. Yeah. Well, I think I said this in one of our previous episodes, which is that like, I feel a lot of the neighbors and friends that go around the Dickinson household go around there Mm. just to like (laughs) see how weird, see the weird Dickinsons and then come home and gossip about it. Like going to the zoo, just being like, "Can you believe those weirdos?" Yeah, like, yeah. like I mean, to be fair to them, in the show, like, there's one time when they go for a séance and like the furniture literally levitates. Like, <laughs> at that point, I'd be like, "Wow, like this is this family is fucked." I think this extended scene between the Dickinson sisters and like Sylvia Plath is one of my favorite things that the show has ever done. I think it's so just incredibly well done and also i think sylvia plath is if you had to Mm. compare to female poets i think sylvia is the one that emily would often be compared to by others and in many ways they do have a lot of commonalities 
But I think this is the first time where Emily's kind of being confronted with a poet who's her own age, who Mm -hmm. is also in Amherst. In many ways, Sylvia wants to get into Emily's headspace and wants to share experiences with her. Yes. But the experience of contact reveals difference more than commonality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, because it's interesting, like, I did obviously look up a bit of the biography of Sylvia Plath, because other than a few of her poems um, and The Bell Jar, like, I I realized I haven't read a lot of her. Like, I recognized um, The Mad Girl's Love Song, which is the one that she does in the episode, um, which Mm. we can talk about. But, like, it's interesting because Sylvia Plath actually publishes for the first time when she's, like, 18 years old on a national level and like wow that's very different than emily um yeah yeah i i find the contrast between the two to be quite i don't know telling so even though there are those commonalities and i think the other thing is like emily they're they're in the future and there's this bit where because sylvia says how like she's at college and stuff and it's an all-girls college and emily Um, excuse me all female college do not make that mistake Okay. My sister college, because I went to a school that has a all-female college attached to it. Right. The newspaper made the mistake of referring to it as an all-girls school, and they were fucking furious. Oh. <laughs> They're like, we oh. are a women's college, not an all-girls school. <laughs> okay. I apologize. <laughs> so Sylvia and, says that there's yeah. an all-women's college, yeah, right? she's at Smith. Yeah. Okay, so, and Emily says, oh, the future must be great for women. And Sylvia's like, "Uh, no, actually, like, it sucks and I try to kill myself. Yeah. Like, yeah. But what I find really interesting is that even though it's 100 years in the future, Mm. in many ways, Emily is more, is better adjusted than Sylvia Mm. is. Yes. Well, that that scene between the the three of them ends with the sledgehammer of a line of the future never comes for women. Yeah. Which is just like, (laughs) ugh. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's such an interesting idea. Like I, I, Mm. I wish that not, not within the context of the show, but I would love to hear like Elena Smith Mm-hmm. expand upon that like in an interview or something yeah i think that would be really interesting and that's the other half that i think makes it interesting you have the coming out of emily to lavinia but there's also this idea that like they travel a hundred years into the future and like things are still bad for women in many ways like well yeah like they don't they don't react to the future with awe and wonder like both Emily and Lavinia are like, we want to go back. Yeah, this sucks. (laughs) Give us the Civil War back. (laughs) 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 Oh, God. It is interesting to see like these two women who have massive ambitions and massive literary ambitions in particular. And like Sylvia Plath realizes them in a way. Like at this point, she has published on a national level within the context of the time period that they're in and she will go on to like I've I've looked it up so like she gets a Fulbright scholarship she goes to the UK that's where she meets um her husband Ted Hughes isn't it yes she marries Ted Hughes 
she publishes collections of poetry. She publishes the bell jar, although apparently she published it originally under a pseudonym, which is interesting. And even all of that theoretical success does not alleviate um, either the mental health issues that she goes through or just being a woman in any time period is kind of crappy. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there are, there are upsides and downsides mm. of every generation and every age. And I think that mm-hmm. sadly is the case that for the last 2000 years, at least um, yeah. women have taken the brunt of, uh, well, it really depends what you mean. Like I had a history, I had a history professor who was kind of very anti-feminist and mm. he, he always used to say like, it's easy to point at women's suffering in the past um, mm but only if you don't count soldiers as people. Ooh, interesting. And that's that's a very strong statement to make, and I don't think it's one that I would agree with, because I think if you're looking at the socioeconomic suffering that women have experienced, that's a different kind of suffering to the suffering that men have experienced throughout history. But it is the truth that in terms of domestic life and socioeconomic position, women have basically been repressed Mm. for nearly for you know 2000 years at least at least at least at least yeah it's like and even hopshetsit had to wear that fake fucking beard to be taken seriously so yeah exactly like i'm just the reason i say that is because there were some societies in which pre-christian times women weren't so Mm. repressed you know there's certain Mm. african societies Mm. and things where that isn't the case Um, and the future is kind of like a topic of the episode isn't it because she says Mm. that like the future never comes for women but also the poem is the future never spoke what do you think the show is saying about the idea of the future i mean i think it it does come down to that line even with these like well first of all that the future distorts a lot emily's life is distorted by the basically the men who tell her story after her slash maybe Mabel Loomis Todd is in on that too. I did look it up and actually Mabel Loomis Todd's daughter, Millicent Todd Bingham, actually Ugh. becomes one of the first preeminent Dickinson scholars. Really? So that she can basically talk about how great her mother was. Ugh. So a whole family made took Emily's legacy and turned it into their own wealth and and yep. livelihood, basically. Mm-hmm. That's just, that's really... <sighs> there probably is some good in that, you know, like... Well, it probably, I mean, it's a mixture of things, right? So, like, right. this is the argument. So, like, so this is the same, you know, slight tangent, but, we're, you know, mm-hmm. people talk about the Parthenon marbles, right? And, like, that the British Museum should return them to Greece. Uh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So this is the argument, right? And people people now are very keen to say, well, they were taken as the plunder of... Colonialism. Colonialism. Now, I personally believe they should go back to Greece. However, I don't think it's because they were the spores of colonialism, because as much as the British Museum has a lot of stuff that is definitely the spores of colonialism, the Parthenon marbles just aren't one of them, in my mind, because they were rescued by Lord Elgar, when the Parthenon was being used as a artillery and gunpowder store by mm. 
the by the Greeks, right? And essentially, the Greeks at the time didn't care about the Parthenon marbles. Probably they're not going to be very happy that I say that. The Greek audience is coming for us. I yeah. know. But it's evidenced by the fact that they then sold them to Lord Elgar, who shipped them back to the UK. And that probably saved them because literally later on, the Ottomans blew up the Parthenon. Ooh. It's it's kind of one of those things where it's like Mabel Loomis Todd might have corrupted Emily's work, but yeah. potentially she also meant made sure that it was transmitted mm. through time. Like we dump on her a lot, but it is potentially like her initial efforts that led to the Emily that we know now. Yeah. There is a discussion about like how one, the future never comes for women, but also like the future distorts them as well. Because I think even the image that we have of Sylvia Plath is not necessarily one of like a literary genius because she is, but rather mm-hmm. one of like a woman with severe mental health problems, which clouds the work that she has actually created. Yeah, and I think that goes both ways as well. Like, mm. women throughout history have been had that has have had their achieve, achievements minimized and have yeah. been largely swept to the side, while men who perhaps haven't done very great deeds or have built upon the work of women have been magnified and mm. pushed forward. Yeah, that's often the case. I mean, because for a long time men were the historians. And because for a long time, women weren't allowed to be historians, that meant that men had a very fundamental bias to believe that if two people were involved in, I mean, you know, look at Mary Curie, for example, like Mm. now we know that she's this fantastic genius and everything. But, you know, if you went back like 60, 70 years, they'd be like, yeah, like she was good, but hardly preeminent. Yeah. Now that's changing, hopefully, because we have more women in history, basically, as a discipline. Do you think we'll, I mean, obviously we will get to a point where like a lot of history is revisited and we do reveal that women played a much larger role than we were led to believe. But like, I wonder who else will, you know, be revealed as a far more important figure than we have been taught. Because the other thing is, like, as much as history is biased against women and skewed towards men, it mm. is equally biased towards the upper classes. Oh, yes, absolutely. Nearly always. And, yes, yes, yes. And I think, in fact, in some ways, I would say almost maybe more than it is biased towards women, because if you were an upper class woman with plenty mm. of wealth and resources, you could still kind of break through that glass ceiling for a lack of a better word mm-hmm. and end up being quite famous but if you were poor and working class like either your achievements would be co-opted by the people you worked for or you would simply be seen as almost subhuman and they're, they're called you know historians refer to them as silent voices like the 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 people who had no voice to speak through the lens of history because perhaps mm. they were illiterate or because people weren't interested in recording what they had to say Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole effort at the moment, you know, with Black History Month and things to revive the stories of Black people yes. um, is an attempt to do that, to rediscover the wealth of history, both in America and in Europe and in Africa and 
to try and kind of reestablish the voices of of black people that have been lost over yes. maybe the last 300 or 400 years so the the book that i got from the dickinson scholar her name is ifa murray uh she is part of one of the other dickinson podcasts that has emerged because right. there are other dickinson podcasts out there which is great but her book is called like made as muse and it's entirely about how like emily was able to do what she did because she had help like because there was help in the house and she sort of like she talks about how there are these two like larger generative periods of emily's life there's like these two big peaks and those coincide Mm. with them having help in the house well it's literally a matter of time i mean it really is emily could write more because mm-hmm. she was freed from domestic, freed up from domestic labor yes. because she had domestic help. And that goes through, I mean, like think of all the, if you think about like the origins of Western society, if we go back to mm-hmm. like Athens, right? Like sixth century, fifth century BC Athens, we think about like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and like all these people, like they could sit around all day and talk about philosophy because mm. they had slaves who yeah. washed their clothes and cleaned their homes and cooked meals for them. And that is literally why they had the time to do what they did. It's important not to lose sight of that, I think. Right, that a lot of these works of genius are contingent on the invisible labor of people who we will never know. Yeah, and that's true now. I mean, think about... Mm. I, I remember thinking about this when I was at university, how like I was like... Uh, a middle-class white kid at university spending all my time like studying and things and then mm-hmm. the university campus was basically run by a huge co- cohort of blue-collar workers who mm-hmm. cooked and cleaned and tended the gardens and like all this stuff you know yeah and so true. i had the ability to access those resources because they were basically being maintained by members of staff who themselves did not use those resources or did not have access to them. And that's in modern academia, you know? Yeah. I was like, those power structures haven't changed. It's just that <laughs> the future never comes. For... You no. Know, so you can expand the statement, the future never comes for women. And you can say the future never comes for anyone apart from rich people, rich men. Yeah. And the odd occasional rich woman who becomes a queen or gets some huge yeah, inheritance was... and decides to do something crazy with it. I was actually listening to someone talk about uh, Catherine the Great and how even her, like, she was very smart at how she ran the court and how she, you know, staged this revolution against her husband. But we've reduced her to, like, she was so sexual, couldn't be held back because that's a way of, like, removing power from her actual abilities. Well, it happens all the time. So, like, another great example is the Empress Theodora, the Byzantine Empress. Mm. Uh, She was the wife of Justinian, who is one of the greatest Byzantine emperors. Um, And she started life as a hetaira, which is basically a sex worker um, Mm. who is educated to entertain upper-class men. Yeah. Uh, And she climbed her way up to being the Empress of Byzantium, which at the time was one of the greatest empires of the world. And there was a court historian named Procopius, I think it was Procopius, and 
he wrote two histories of yeah he wrote two histories of Justinian and Theodora uh, one while they were alive and one after they had died and the one that he wrote while they were they were alive was full of praise for both mm. of them the second one he called the secret history or, or the anecdotia in its original and basically it was full of terrible terrible slander basically about Theodora yeah. so like for example I'll just read this bit because it's really like so he wrote often even in the theater in the sight of all the people she would remove her costume and stood nude in the midst of them <laughs> except for a girdle about her groin not that she was abashed at revealing her groin too to the audience but because there was a law against appearing altogether naked on the stage with at least without at least as much as a fig leaf covered thus with a ribbon she would sink down to the stage floor recline on her back and slaves to whom the duty was entrusted would then scatter grains of barley and of passion flower on her whence geese trained for this purpose would pick the grains off one by one with their bills and eat what <laughs> basically he's implying that she right. got sexual gratification from having say, geese publicly eat off of her, eat naked, off body. Of her naked body yeah. yeah so it's like oh my god she was such a like nymphomaniac like whoa yeah. that's so extreme right like that's almost laughable um, right. But he was seriously writing this stuff and people took him seriously because he was he was Procopius. He was the historian of that period. Like but it was slander. Like it wasn't like did she actually do this or was it well there's no way it could be true. Yeah, oh true. I mean, yeah. could you, can you imagine? <laughs> do you think that she did really did that? Did Catherine the Great really have sex with a horse? Like, no, of course not. Like exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, the same for Marie Antoinette, right? Where people were saying like they trashed her just and so they could get oh, rid of her. Because they needed someone and it's easier to go after a woman than it is to go after a man. Exactly. Um, we are well off. I do want to say, yeah. I, but like, I do also love um, the exchange between the three women where Sylvia Plath is delivering this as a, a, in a very like lascivious and scandalous way where she was like, she was a she was a lesbian, and they both <laughs> Lavinia is just like mm, no, she was an American. <laughs> Maybe you know, the hardest yeah. I've laughed in the show. <laughs> like, yeah, I love that. I've actually, I think I heard someone else tell that joke recently. Oh, really? Oh, I think it's. I think there's a vine. It is. No, it is a vine because um, it, somebody I forget who. I'm removed from the Twitter of this, of like this podcast. I'm sorry, but somebody did say like, I'm here for like deep literary cuts and Vine references. So I think that this is a Vine reference, which is wild. Like, yeah, I think it is a Vine. There's literally a Vine where this woman's like, I'm a lesbian and the little kid's like, I thought you were an American. <laughs> <laughs> that's um, but, f- fucking brilliant i'm so like but i do see your i do see your point because like i i kind of think that that's like a reflection on sylvia's time though when mm. when a lot of men and a lot of people generally had this idea of like lesbianism as like some almost quasi joke where yeah. it's like you know she was she was a weirdo and she liked women and I mean, but that's like, still kind of, ha- I mean, like that's run through history for forever. Cause I was again, still reading about Japanese 
same-sex relationships and like there was a point where they start litigating male-to-male relationships and they just don't speak about female-female relationships at all because they're like what could two women possibly do together well I think so that's basically it like I think they don't take it seriously but also I think there's this attitude of like men see female-female relationships as being inherently fantastical and erotic Mm, and mm. they they almost think like well of course when women are alone and they don't have men around they they do this but like as soon as there's a man then Mm. it's different you know whereas I think for for gay men I think what's threatening to straight men about gay men is not not just not just that there's the threat of penetration and stuff for straight men gay men are threatening for straight men, right. lesbians are titillating. <laughs> and, there, and there's a difference. And that means yes. that that difference is, decides what is criminal and what is not, basically. Oh, God. Fundamentally. Because straight it's men make the, make the law. And it's across cultures that it's actually happening. Like, it's not just, you know, the West, yeah, and that's even because, here. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's because there is an evolutionary... I think there's a, there's a biological component to that mm. thinking um my god all right uh to go back to <laughs> so can we before so they, tra- okay. they travel through time emily yes. emily and lavinia travel through time this is actually triggered by the conversation in many ways triggered by the conversation that emily has with sue in the orchard right so can yes. we talk about that a bit yes i wanted to talk a lot about this because it is one a massive callback to the pilot yeah where they have their first conversation in the orchard I did write in my notes, like, <laughs> why the fuck is Sue in this tree, in this elegant dress? Because, no, I'm sorry, but see, I disagree with that, Carl. Oh, I just, okay. If I, had, if I had elegant 18, mm-hmm. uh, 19th century dresses to wear, I would, yes. be, I would be draping myself across trees and beaches and, and rocks and men and you just are i wrote as this conversation goes on i was like sue is a fucking sagittarius (laughs) so you are you are sue (laughs) i do i do feel that like i have remember in season one like i was very pro sue and very anti-emily yes um and i think that that that's as much as i and then in season two i was very anti-sue but i think that's because all the things i disliked about sue are things i dislike about myself so uh well that makes sense yeah i find yeah. that with i guess i'm closest to yeah all the things about emily that i dislike are like oh no i identify with that season one emily i was way too closely identified with were like i thought i was hot shit but i didn't do anything <laughs> i just didn't have that discipline and i was like oh no that's me, it's me. <laughs> so instead i will just talk shit about it and not engage with this issue at all <laughs> like, but I think peak Sagittarius Sue is her being like, you haven't come to see me. And Emily's like, yeah, I thought you were mad at me. And she and Sue responds with, I am mad at you. That's why you should come to see me. Yeah. <laughs> I relate to that so much. Like, I think, I think yeah. I'm personally, I'm mature enough now that I know that's how I feel. And I'm like, no, but they can't read my mind. So right. I have to go and communicate. But I think me as a teenager... I was a hundred percent like people should just like know and yeah and should just come and like 
And my parents were like very absent a lot of the time. So they, mm. whenever I was upset, they would, and I would like go off to my room. They would never come after me. Yeah, yeah, no. I was like, oh, I don't think my times. parents ever did that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we learn our behaviors, and I'm slowly unlearning them and working on exactly. <laughs> yeah, what did you get out of this scene? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I loved this scene. I really did because mm. I think mm. that it felt very real and again it comes down to the crux of sue wanting emily for emily and emily wanting sue as a muse yes and actually that is the fundamental problem of their relationship now and there is almost a denial on emily's part of being that open with her Like, as Sue says, like, she wants the mess. She wants what she can't put into words. And Emily almost wants that boundary in between them. But Emily is so deep in denial in this season Mm. that she Mm -hmm. doesn't even have that honesty with herself. And so there's no way she can have it with Sue. And I think she knows that if she were to be intimate with Sue now, um, it would bring out all of the things that she's... Pent up or... Repressing, pushing down. Yeah, yeah. And so that's why this season she's keeping Sue at arm's length, pretty much. Although she still, like, professes love to her, but it is, like, love on Emily's terms. It's a very... You you say that, but I think that it's a very... It is, like, the love of a... uh, It's like the love of a painter for his muse. Yeah. Like, he... Like Emily almost professes love for Sue because she she's saying I love Sue for your for her for her brain and for her inspiration mm. and and like all these things. But like Emily, it the, the crux of the argument right comes there's a there's a, the bit in this scene where Sue says about Emily not even wanting to see the baby doesn't she or what what did she say she's like you've barely had any time to emily says like you've barely read my poems and sue responds with and you've barely had any time for my baby this is paraphrasing yeah and i think that's because again like in a way emily's actually quite selfish in that she she, she's she's fundamentally not interested in sue's real life yes like she's interested in sue as an accessory to Mm. this imaginative world. Yeah, I feel like a friend sent me some meme recently that was like, if a man says he loves you, but writes 3,000 sonnets about you, it's actually because he loves writing sonnets. (laughs) But that's it, that's so true. (laughs) That's so true. And like, you can't, you can't like ever have... You know, if people, so like, it's like, I always think about this when people write like famous rock stars, write love songs for their girlfriends and stuff. And I'm always like, no, like you just needed to write a song. song. Yeah. And your girlfriend was a nice hook to hang that song that on. song around. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that sounds really harsh because I'm sure there are some people who genuinely write beautiful music for people that they love but also mm. sometimes it's like you could i mean look at taylor swift like how many boyfriends has she done albums about leave now? taylor alone <laughs> <laughs> wow there's so many other targets we could go after <laughs> this is a really interesting idea though because i'm reading um 
at the moment I'm reading Alan Moore's Promethea. Do, do you know? Mm. Um, um, do you I've... know Alan Moore? I do know Alan Moore. I have not read Promethea. But one of the like themes of Promethea is that Promethea is this like divine spirit of inspiration mm. that occupies the body of wi- these women throughout history, usually because a man has written about Promethea with that woman as their as his in- as the- his inspiration. And that's what allows Promethea to come through. But one of the bitter facts about being Promethea for these women is that actually they are fairly inconsequential. And what matters is the idea of Promethea almost, which is inverted at the end because the last person to become Promethea imagines herself as Promethea. So it's like a slight inversion. I was just because even to go back to like the 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 theme of this season or like the the reference point of the season of like Dante, like yes. Beatrice is his muse, but isn't he supposed to have only met her like once or twice in real life? Like he did not marry Beatrice. He did not have a real relationship with her. I don't think he even really met her. So I remember because I went wow. to Ravenna <laughs> and I went to the Dante Museum three years ago now. And I think that he saw he would regularly see her across the courtyard going to church and he knew who she was. But wow. even then her face was veiled. That's my understanding. Someone out there might know that otherwise, but I think they def- regardless, they definitely never were intimate. And I don't think they ever spoke at length with one another. And yet you're right, like Dante peppers his work with mm-hmm references to Beatrice like not even just the divine comedy I, I think he's say, written yeah she appears in quite a few things but even like the, the purpose of the divine comedy is for him to like unite with Beatrice well he sees Beatrice as being an aeon of mm. the divine mm-hmm. and his goal is to become like Beatrice right he sees Beatrice as being in communion with the godhead and he aspires to be that and he has to be guided to that by Beatrice, which mm-hmm. is completely fallacy because that's not the real Beatrice, the woman. Right. That's an image he of the divine. Conjuring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's complete it's, it's a complete illusion. It's real as in it is a real imagining of what he thinks an idealized Beatrice is, but it's still just a fantasy ultimately Um, and I think that's often like the problem with poets or the problem with artists I was going to say art in general yeah yeah is that it's very easy to confuse fantasy and reality basically and I think that's what Sue is arguing for where she's like I need something that you can't put into words like I want she physically wants Emily like she wants and not in like a I don't know, a crass way. Like, she wants her body. She wants Emily's time. Yeah, she wants her time. She wants her physical proximity. Like, she wants physical intimacy and emotional closeness, which Emily is not offering at all right now. No. And I think this is something that then Sylvia says. Oh, um, yes, it's the where there, Emily says, like, why are we talking about the fact that she was a lesbian, shouldn't we be talking about her poetry? And Sylvia Plath is like, can you really separate the two? Yes, exactly. That's what I mean. Do you really think you can pull the two apart? Because 
that is a hundred percent. Yeah. That's what you're talking about. There has to be a synthesis between these. Mm. And that reflects what Betty said in the previous episode about art has to embrace life. Right. Yes. Yeah. Um, Otherwise it's as good as dead. Yeah. And I think the funny thing is, and I think maybe what offends Sue so much about the Higginson Higginson letters Mm. is that Emily's writing to Higginson and saying, is my work alive? Because she thinks that she needs approval from the outside, from the real world in inverted commas. Yes. um, To prove that her writing is alive. But Sue is there already. And Sue could give that affirmation Mm. if Emily would just embrace what she's offering. Yes. Because Emily feels like she needs this objective approval where she's like, maybe when you say you like my poetry, it's only because you like, maybe when you say you love a line, it's only because you love me. And Sylvia is there to be like, can you separate the two? I think one of the themes of the season, uh, of this season is, because I said like last season, one of the themes was like, you make your choices and then you have to live with the adult consequences. But I think maybe this season, one of the themes is like, you have to make the most of what you do have. A lot of the characters are kind of stuck in life circumstances which they resent and are unhappy with. But mm. like in the last episode, Sue accepted Austin's desire to be an unconventional father and that actually turned out to be a good thing for both of them. And then if Emily could only accept what Sue wants from her and Sue's real life circumstances, aka the baby, etc., mm-hmm. then maybe actually that would give her the validation that she desires in her writing. I wonder if the theme couldn't be something like, and I I don't mean this in a trite way, but in like Mm. imagination, in the idea, like almost for the show, but the idea that like the way things are is not necessarily the way things should be or have to remain. Find the areas where you can push and push. Yeah, find, or like find the good in what you have. Mm, mm. Because like, I think this is something that the real Emily had to cope with. And I think maybe mm. it was one of the big challenges for her when you read her poems and read her work is that the real Emily Dickinson had a humongous mind and thirst yes. for the world and for, mm. think, for, for understanding and for knowledge and, and, and like... I want to. I want to use like the word gnosis. Like she wanted to. Mm. She wanted to know things on a fundamental level, like not just in a intellectually intellectually curious way, but on a spiritual level. She had this thirst for existence, and yet she's trapped in like this. Like I'm sure Amherst is a nice town, and she loved woman, Amherst. Yeah. I'm, yeah, and I'm sure she really did. But you know, for someone with such a large mind mm-hmm. and large heart to then be in this circumstance of having very little personal freedom. You know, I imagine that's really difficult, but I think the real Emily did her best to yes. make her everyday life divine and make her everyday life full. And you can see that in like her herbarium. And you can see that in her, the fact that she actually did have a good relationship with the children. Yes. Um, And you can see that in her love of music, the fact that there was a lot of piano playing and singing in their household, her greenhouse, her, you know, all of this stuff is like the real Emily taking this little patch of world that she was given 
and saying, this will be my tiny kingdom. And that she doesn't need more than that, other than Maggie to cook and clean for her. Clean. <laughs> so that she has time to do this stuff. She looked at the world and saw what she could do and decided to do it. And mm. that was enough, hopefully. And yet, because she says it in the scene where she's like, no, the real Emily Dickinson wasn't depressed. She wants to use her poetry to connect to the world. And instead, her story has been twisted over time. I'm not saying Elena Smith is doing the untwisting, but like she is definitely helping us widen our idea of who Emily could have been. I just think like we do need to be careful not to go too far, though, because we right. we can't neglect the fact that she literally did spend a great significant portion of her life behind closed doors in privacy. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think that I hope that when they end the show, they are able to reflect the fact that maybe Emily moved into a more introspective mm. mode of life, mm-hmm. um, that perhaps she made that decision and and that she was at peace with it, I hope. Yeah. I wanted to actually ask about the the Mad Girl's love song, the poem that Sylvia Plath recites. And that I do love the image of like Emily and Lavinia slowly backing out of the room as she does this. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> okay, we're gonna leave now. Goodbye. Uh, <laughs> well, the the I think like it's one of the things I like is that even though the Dickinsons are like clearly unhinged sometimes, they're yes. also like quite down to earth in some ways. Mm. Um, yes. And I think they look at Sylvia Plath and they're like, "Ooh, Boy. like <laughs> this girl's never had to collect water." Like, yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's funny um but the actual mad girls love song have you seen it no i haven't no okay so what the the show does and how the poem actually functions are different because the poem is what's called a villanelle which is a rigidly structured poem form um, right i think i remember learning about it in school years ago I think the most famous one is the Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night Thomas poem. Because the idea is that, like, it basically works as, like, oh, God. I I, I was like, it's A, B, A. But then those first two lines are just, like, repeated at the end of each stanza alternatingly. So I just, I don't know. It's a very complicated and difficult poem form to to actually execute so i just wanted to be i don't know call attention to the fact that the way the show uses the poem the way the poem is actually structured are two very different things gosh she is an enigma in herself i was going to say it made me want to go and actually read um ariel because i i haven't read much of her work but the ones that I have read have always stuck with me. Like, um, I think Mirror is one of her more anthologized ones. The Mirror poem still gives me nightmares on occasion. So, like, oh God, it's it's <laughs> it's very good. Once you have finished reading all eighteen hundred works of Emily Dickinson, move on to the works of Sylvia Plath. Well, maybe like give yourself a breather first. Just, just, <laughs> just, just as an idea, like go on holiday to a tropical island. Go for island. a walk. I love how you're like, go for a walk. And I'm like, literally go to the other side of the world and lie yeah. on the beach. 
poetry life is really difficult because it really gets you at this is the other thing about poetry which is it gets you at different times in your life so mm-hmm. you read one poem when you're young and you think oh this is so rubbish and I, I don't feel it I mean, at all yeah and then you come back to it later and you're like oh that's what they were I mean saying and that's <laughs> that's me and Emily now where when I read her in high school and in college I was like oh this sucks and now yeah I just, um, I feel like I understand it much better. And I just had a lot of growing to do. I was reading some of Caroline Duffy recently and I used to really like her stuff, but I've been, re- I tried rereading it recently and I was like, this seems really <gasps> boring. Oh no. Will that yeah. happen with me and Emily? <laughs> will I, will I outgrow her? Probably not. I think Emily's one of the weird, well, you might, but I think you'd have to, I think it's, I think Emily's one of those ones where maybe you don't outgrow a true work of genius because it continues to yeah. reveal new, like Shakespeare, like you, you Shakespeare works at any age on multiple levels. forever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Whereas some things don't do that. Some things hit a particular note. At the right time and then and they're done. Yeah. 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 Well, also, there's varying quality within Emily's own work. Like, some of her poems are going to be, like, hit or miss, and then some of them are going to endure. We've discussed the Emily Sue dynamic, I think, for enough time. Um, Mm. There's kind of two other elements to the episode, aren't there? There's Henry and the Black Soldiers, and Henry finally taking action. Not against Higginson, but confronting Yeah, but at least on his performative allyship bullshit i got to the end of that scene and i was like henry don't trust him oh really oh, yeah because i thought like it honestly maybe i just jumped to like the worst case scenario but i thought higginson when he was like oh maybe if you want to go and like stop this car at this place yeah like i thought maybe he was like setting henry up because henry was trying to undermine him oh okay because i took it as like he wouldn't do that because if he set him up like the scandal does ultimately come back to higginson that scene was good because mm. I I love that Higginson says, like, you can't possibly imagine. Oh, yeah. And then Henry's like... I live it every damn day, is what he says. Yeah, yeah it's like Higginson's, like, seeing seeing mm. this racism, and it's like Higginson's like, oh, for the first time I'm having to, like, fight this uphill battle and no one could possibly imagine it. And he's failing to understand that that uphill battle that he's like Higginson's kind of taken up this this position almost like on a rich man's whim of like a well yeah he even earlier at the start of the scene says like if only I could be in the Atlantic writing about birds again yeah like, exactly sir and like you could and like you yeah exactly he has that option like he can he can just like be like oh no I he's kind of done this as like a as like a whim as like a fashion yeah yeah thing and he's like oh it's so difficult and it's like yes it's fucking difficult it's war and he also hasn't done any work yeah and that like we've seen it's what and, and it's like yeah but you've never been a slave have you like yeah and he's like you can't possibly imagine i just thought it was really well written a very mm-hmm. nice scene um i like that henry is not aggressive but is assertive and is honest and is honest yeah, yeah. And I like that it makes Higginson look as powerless as he really is. Mm-hmm. In that Higginson ultimately doesn't have the balls to be the radical he pretends to be. 
And that in order to actually change a system, you have to operate outside of it. Like you cannot follow the rules and expect it to change. No, exactly. Uh, there's so much more out of this episode that I want to talk about. <laughs> like, well, well, come on, well, you know, lay, lay it on me. What, well, even what, like, what stands out to you? there's so many small little details going on as far as like, I'm going back to the, the future stuff where like literally the color grade changes to reflect the color grade of like movies from the fifties. Really? Like, yes. If you notice like, the way that the reds and the like blue greens pop is a very like 1950s era color grade. Those two colors, the way that they process film at the time would be the things that pop the most versus when they travel back into time, it like resumes the original color grade. So I just sat there being like, fuck, they thought about this too. (laughs) Well, I I thought the Dickinson, they did a good job of like making the Dickinson household look familiar, Mm. but also... But also uncanny. Neglected. Yeah. Uncanny and neglected, yeah. I thought it was like really good. Um, Another small little piece that I wanted to call attention to is when we actually see the collected poems of Emily Dickinson, like sitting on the shelf, the music cue from that is the cue that we hear when she first gets published in the Springfield Republican in season two. Like it's a version of the Maywine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So we haven't really ever called attention to the original music of the show. And that moment I just sat there being like, it's. Which is funny because when I'm at work, um, I often have the Dickinson score. Yeah. In the background, In, in the office, people don't really understand what it is. Oh, this is very interesting. I'm like, yes. But uh, yeah, so just very quickly, because we've never actually said anything, but Drum and Lace and Ian Holtquist, like the two who write the music of Dickinson, excellent job. That moment hit and I was just like, oh, this is from when they're showing all the newspapers being published in season two with her poem in it. And we're seeing her stuff being published after her death, like all of it. So the sound cue, it just makes sense. It's so good. Yeah, and it encouraged me to go and look at like drum and lace outside of the context of the show as well, which which I I now enjoy mm-hmm. listening to them. So I wanted to also discuss just that final moment between Vinny and Emily when they have returned to the past. And we learn that it was actually just in Emily's imagination. And yeah. Vinny says that line about how real love doesn't exist in your imagination. It exists right here in this objectively horrible place we call reality. Yeah. Yep. Is the thing Emily, that's what Emily has to learn. But, but also that's the thing that makes love beautiful, really. Like if mm. it was all just, if it was all like telenovela love, then yeah, what would it really mean? You know, like mm. the great wonder of love is that it gives us hope and solace in Mm. an otherwise very difficult existence yeah but yeah it is what emily has to learn i think that's the kind of crux of the episode i I think that the other thing is just shout out to mr and mrs dickinson for getting high oh my god Um, (laughs) like there's just so much fun like i love mr and mrs dickinson's almost like retirement oh yeah i also love that emily's just like low-key growing weed in in, in the, the conservatory, yeah. Like, why not? Why, <laughs> why wouldn't <not>? you? <laughs> like, 
it's there. What else do you use it for if not to grow whatever plants you want? I think I would be like Mr. and Mrs. Dickinson because I've actually never smoked marijuana. Oh. Um, well, I just, first of all, never really had the opportunity mm. um, except for like briefly in university when a few friends used to do it. Okay. Um, but also like my my family does have a history of some significant mental illness and I always thought, Mm. And then when I was in university, I had a friend who sadly um, really went off the rails and ended up getting sectioned um, oh, where shit. drugs led to a psychotic break of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it was just like, oh, that's a cautionary tale. Like, I don't actually enjoy smoking. I do enjoy edibles. Those are far more fun for me. Um, smoking, I don't know, enabled a lot of paranoia that I did not feel comfortable with. So. so I'm not totally anti-drugs because I think that there's a place for, in, in a safe environment with people you trust, yeah. um, mm-hmm. I think that there's a place for psychedelics. But you just have to do it really carefully with people you trust and do your research. Weed isn't a psychedelic, but okay. So like, it's not, yeah, so I am naive in that I have no personal experience, but I have a lot of experience with people who are significantly have had significantly bad life altering experiences mm-hmm. or death as a result of drug abuse. So I've, I, I will just say that I went back to America, had a thoroughly fucking miserable summer with my parents. And part of how I got through it was edibles. So <laughs> just like me staring out at the mountains. Yeah. Staring out of the mountains like, being like, you go deal with your shit. I'm just going to look at the, these like my version of that is a glass of wine a glass of a glass of wine and two sertraline tablets so yeah <laughs> i'm like that's fine everybody got their something they should just exactly. decriminalize things that's all i'm saying people shouldn't go to fucking prison for this stuff no definitely anyway. not <laughs> uh, um is there anything else in this oh um austin's draft dodging i'm just going to say that it did happen in real life yeah of course it did it's yeah. in a quiet passion as well i do not remember that i do not remember well, he, a quiet a, passion in, very well it doesn't happen but it's like referenced because he has an argument uh, with his father and his father's like we will pay someone else to do this for you and you will not go and then that's like, right. i want to go and, and his dad's like no because you are a dickinson and you have to stay here and be a lawyer but yeah, no, wonderful episode. I think we've been a bit chaotic yeah. in our reportage. Um, I was going to say, this episode, this podcast episode is all over the place. Yeah, but that's because there was so much to talk about and like... It's true. And it's just... just get out of it. And we right. were so interested that different bits stood out to us, so... All right. Do you have the poem? I like this poem, so here we go. The future never spoke, nor will he, like the dumb, reveal by sign a syllable of his profound to come. But when the news be ripe, presents it in the act, for stalling preparation, escape or substitute. Indifference to him, the dower as the doom, his office but to execute, fate's telegram to him. I love that she immediately assumes that the future will be profound. It is all like... 
isn't there profundity in like the unknowing yeah and also i think the future is always profound because it mm, mm, it mm. is life and an existence and the continuation of life and existence yeah no i was like i think there's just an interesting um idea of like causality in all of this like the the fates telegram section and just the idea that like i just find myself wondering if there's a question of like inevitability versus like change because ultimately we can prepare like it says but we mm. can't actually do anything about it the future will out no matter what yeah and i think that's the point of the the poem isn't it indifference yeah. to him the dawa as the doom his office but to execute fate's telegram to him it's like um fate will lay down its its orders and the future will execute them um, as is his office whether they're good or bad it's and it we yeah we cannot prepare for the future fully like it will happen and we will have to live with it yeah uh unless you're a boy scout and then you are prepared or one of scar's hyenas <laughs> it does feel much more enmeshed in the the body of the uh the episode than some of the other ones have been just in terms of being like connected to that uh that idea of like the inevitability of what happens because i guess actually this does connect to the very final moment of the um the episode which is yeah, it does. the reveal that Fraser, as as George says, and as was written, Fraser is killed, that this is how the news was delivered, and that this is the future that Emily in season two saw. I was like, I know you had an issue with the idea of like Emily actually being psychic, but I was like, I don't know. I wonder sometimes, not about <laughs> Emily specifically, but if some people can't, I don't know be connected oh, I believe, to the future I believe. yeah no no i think that i think that the human well we won't get too much into it but i do think that some people through dreams or mm. through their subconscious are privy to a perspective that stands outside of time and maybe mm. therefore see glimpses of other times and places yeah i think this too um, I mean, I've experienced it myself to a degree. Like, I'm mm-hmm. a very strong dreamer. Um, mm. I I oft, I sometimes lucid dream. Um, I usually remember my dreams. Um, mm. And I, I have often had experiences where I will have a conversation with someone in a dream and then have the same conversation mm. in reality. Or I will mm. go to a place in my dreams and then find myself in that place um yeah i've like, done that too <laughs> exactly and i think a lot of people do i think it's mm. it's because we're all tied to this um something yeah and also i think that time is not as linear as we think i think our brains right. maybe sort things into order a lot of time a lot of the time mm. um and memory itself is elusive because if you think about it, the only time you really exist is right now. 
Yes. Um, I will stop myself from saying the line that I want to say. Is it a quote from like The Good Place or something? Forever is composed of nows. <laughs> oh, there we go. Yes. Forever is composed of nows. Yes. And so I yeah. think they're like, but we exist conceptually outside of that. Mm, that our limited perception of time as a linear thing is not necessarily how time functions. I was asking somebody recently, because there are times where I feel like time itself is a substance and I can like feel it. Well, Sounds have you read insane? Have you read Terry Pratchett? Uh, I have only read Good Omens, actually. Oh, you need to read some of the other stuff, some of the other stuff just for laughs. But um, there's a great bit, bit, bit in that where I think it's Nanny Og, who's like this old mm. mountain witch. She says, oh, time's very easy to play with. You can stretch and bend it and stuff. People do it all yeah. the time. Yeah. Um, and it's like one of the easiest forms of magic sort of thing. Like people, because literally like when you're bored, time goes slowly. When you're having fun, time goes quickly. Like a wedding can feel like it lasts forever, but a day mm. can go by in the blink of an eye. My job is in film and like, obviously people have all sorts of concepts of film, but when I get down to it, I do think that like ultimately film at its peak is sculpting with time. Yeah. Well, like, it is, isn't yeah, it? Like you take, yeah. not just in terms of like pacing and stuff, but also mm. when you're editing it, like you're taking clips and cutting bits and pieces out of what is recorded to, create the optimum frame of time right for a story to be experienced or for a piece of art to be experienced yeah and so like yeah no when i get very philosophical about it and i think um someone some soviet i think it was tarkovsky like would talk about how it is just like a profound sculpting of time that no other art form is able to do I think the other thing about that idea of time is mm. that, um, and I think Emily maybe would have toyed with this a bit or been aware of this, but if you think of our our bodies as being finite, but our mm -hmm. souls as being eternal, yeah. um, if our souls are truly eternal, then they are by default beyond the reach of time. And so therefore perhaps outside of time, perhaps our bodies and our brains experience time in a linear fashion, but our souls experience it in a kind of, in a different way. Perhaps all of our life already exists within our souls from the moment we are born to the moment we die. That it exists on like a fourth dimensional plane. Yeah. Do you think you could ever like, oh my God, we're just going down the rabbit hole with this one. I was like, do you That's think you fine. could ever just like train yourself to- I think some people claim that they have. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I mean, that's what that's part of the part of the purpose of magic, right? Like the mm. concept of as above, so below. The macrocosm mm. in the microcosm, the microcosm in the macrocosm. Our bodies and our souls are microcosms of everything of the the universe. Yeah. So therefore, we are outside of time. Like we are divine. I think maybe that's why people have those experiences. Like even deja vu, which we can come up with a scientific explanation for, but actually why, you know, the miracle of consciousness, like why do we have Feel memory, memory as yeah. a capacity? Why do we 
have the ability to imagine things in our minds. You know, like if you mm-hmm. imagine the image of a vase, that vase mm-hmm. doesn't suddenly exist in your brain. Like it exists somewhere though, doesn't it? Because you can see it with your mind. Do you think because we have conceptualized it that it exists somewhere or does it even need, like, is that even necessary for it to be real? Like, is the visualization of it in your brain enough to make it real in some form? That's what I mean. The moment you imagine yeah. it, it exists yeah. within your mind. Right. And therefore it is real because it does exist. You experience it. Mm-hmm. You're not experiencing it with your physical senses, but you are experiencing it with your mind. And ultimately everything you experience, you experience with your mind. So what's the difference mm-hmm. between something you experience via your body yeah. and something you experience in your mind? Also, the other thing is that you have created that vase, mm. right? You you haven't just witnessed it, you've brought it into existence in your mind's eye. In your mind, yeah. And yet it is still real. It has no substance, but it exists. So that, for me, is, the, is a strong argument for the fact that there is more than the physical reality. I want to, it's a slightly different tack, but still in the same vein. Um, I don't think we've ever actually discussed on the podcast about like the Greeks, two different conceptions of time. Mm. Like the Kronos and the Kairos. Oh, go on. Educate me because I don't actually know what you're referring to. Oh my God. I know a thing about ancient Greece that you don't. Holy crap. Okay. So the Greeks had two different conceptions of time. Um, Mm. One was Kronos, which is like chronological time obviously yeah and the other was kairos and kairos is the idea like the easiest reduction of it is like the right place at the right time the way that they would illustrate it was like knowing when to loose a arrow an arrow from a bow or knowing when to like throw the shuttle through a loom right so like the idea is that like it's not just providence but like knowing when to do the thing and they sort of believed that you could train yourself to recognize moments of kairos and be like right this is the time to act because the kairos is aligned yeah well i think that's true as well i mean like taoism Mm. has exactly that idea yeah embedded in it that there is a natural rhythm to things Mm -hmm. and or even just a rhythm of for lack of a better word, like fate. Like a like a larger rhythm to the universe. And even like, I don't know, other poets, you know, Yeats get into gets into this with like his gyres and like the the cyclical idea he had of the world. Yeah. 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 Uh, and I think that's true. I think that's real. Like I, I mm-hmm. so much of life is timing. Because my my belief is that there is such a thing as destiny and fate. But I think that we have free will in that we have the choice to to walk the path of destiny, to mm. embrace it or to reject it and move away. And I think that you can't tell which will be better or worse, but one is preordained and one is not, perhaps. So you, like the whole Joseph Campbell hero of a thousand faces, like that you believe extends beyond fiction and is in fact like life like i don't think life has narrative Mm. but i think that we our actions have deterministic outcomes sure yes Mm -hmm. and and that you can begin like a process but you can always i think you can always choose to disengage like for example like take it 
like I live here, I have friends here, I have a job here, my life is here. And by engaging in those things, I continue a process which is ongoing. I mm. could suddenly decide to pick up, sell all my belongings, move to a completely different place, and that would break the chain of events that's happening here, right. and initiate a new chain a new of events one. somewhere else. Sure. Obviously, with some carryover here and there, because you can never really like completely escape all the consequences of your actions. Do you see my point? Like you, you can engage so with the, the processes that are happening that are beyond your control, or you can reject them and, and create a new chain somewhere else if you yes. wanted. So it's not fully deterministic in the sense that like everything is preordained and we have no free will whatsoever, but that like our geographic location does lend itself to a so certain like, chain of events. Not even a... geographical. So like, I'll give you another example. Mm. Like if I decide one morning I wake up and say, I want to make a lemon drizzle cake. Yes. So I go out and I buy the ingredients for a lemon drizzle cake. I begin the mm. process of preparing the lemon drizzle cake. I mix the ingredients, et cetera, et cetera. I preheat the oven. Now, suddenly I pause and I realize I could continue compiling these ingredients that I've bought. I could continue doing all of this. Or mm -hmm. I could just chuck it all away, turn the oven off, and do something different. Yeah. In one outcome... I've bought all the ingredients. I'm not going to make a different cake now. There will be, a, mm. if I continue, there will be a lemon drizzle cake. So it's yeah. determined. But I can also choose to completely reject that. Do you see what yes, I mean? Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, that we so can, like, yeah. If we choose yeah. to follow the course of our actions, like if we choose to finish this podcast, it will lead to whatever would come out of, the, like finishing the actual podcast whereas if we decide right now to stop forever and never record another episode like that breaks the chain of events yeah yeah and so we always have that choice but mm. when you choose to continue you don't always you don't have control of the outcome necessarily yes. yeah uh, we should <laughs> maybe we should wrap this up all has like, to go in this, <laughs> this is a fucking massive episode. Like to anybody who actually gets to this point, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I literally lie around all day on my chase and think about this stuff. You are living the life of Plato and Socrates and those Greek philosophers. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> No, I think about it. I mean, I think a lot of us are now because we have a little more time than our ancestors did. So we have, you know, the time to engage with philosophical ideas. Shall we do the loaves of bread? Yeah, let's do the loaves of bread. <laughs> um, After that deep discussion of determinism. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you get any more Dickinsonian than this episode. I think this is like the the peak of the show in terms of it like leaning into its weirdness and all of that. 10 out of 10. I, I loved it. I loved the episode. I concur with you. Like this episode is really good. I think the fact that we have such a chaotic energy around it <laughs> uh, goes to show how 
it's not so easily broken down. Um, yeah. I do think that the episode, like just on a basic level, structured very well. Um, pacing was very good. Uh, hit all the beats, like acting was solid. Uh, direction yeah. was good. Like uh, overall, um, it was fun, enjoyable. The characters all had interesting moments. So I'm going to give it nine out of 10 loaves of bread. Wow. Which Whoa. I think is the best I've given maybe ever. I think we excluded I Am Nobody, Who Are You? Because it was just so like... But I would put this in that tier of just like... Yes. So good. Yeah, really, really good. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. I think, yeah. I think still nothing has beat Wild Nights for me. Wow, I, I, really? I don't know why, but I just like that episode because oh. it's... I just like the energy of that episode. Like it really. They're both sort of like the show doing the most at what the show can do. Yes. Like it's got the weird aesthetic. It's got, I will say that Wild Nights, not that I'm comparing them, but like misses the sledgehammer of um, the future never comes for women. Like there's nothing quite on that level. Which it makes sense because it's early in yeah. the show. So that's our that's our episode on. <laughs> oh my god! I can't believe I'm going to edit this. Ah. Well, I'm so sorry, Kyle. In it, you know, ah. when you're listening back to it and you're listening to me being like a real twat about things, ah. you can just. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, my bad. You were like, I'm going to go on a hike. No, you're not, Kyle. No, you're not. You're going to sit in your apartment for days editing this thing. <laughs> anyway, you can, re- you can reach us at edictsonedicts at gmail.com. Uh, we have emails. Ben did not check them. I looked at it last night and was like, look at all these unread emails from people. Literally, I have not had a look. I'm sorry. I said I would as well. I, I committed to it and then I didn't I know. do it. I will, I, 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 no, I said this last time, I will look at it. Uh, I will check. I just, I do a job where I spend a lot of time writing emails and letters. And I think that I just got yeah. subsumed in that. So we had Twitter. Don't we have Twitter? I, we do have Twitter. Uh, it's EEDix. So follow us there, even though I'm not actually writing much in it these days. Cause again, I'm focusing on a, project of my own um but write us there and i'll eventually get to it i'm sorry this is a terrible ending (laughs) well also i just want to say like um you did mention earlier before we before we just before we really go (laughs) it's never ending you mentioned there are a few other emily dickinson podcasts yes there are the first thing i would like to do is say if any of the hosts of those podcasts are listening Thank you for listening to this. We appreciate that you love the show and are willing to listen to us be stupid for hours. An an Um, ordinate amount of time. (laughs) Yeah, massive amount of time. Um, So if you're listening to this, like, thank you very much. And also thank you for making a Dickinson podcast because it's it's nice to have other people interested enough to do that. Uh, And then if you guys are not the hosts of these new podcasts, go and check them out because more people talking about emily can only be a good thing so they are the slave is gone is the one featuring uh ifa murray and two poets of color who are talking about 
Dickinson specifically through that lens. And then Dickinson Forevermore, which seems to have emerged out of Dickinson Twitter, which, uh, yeah, they bring out special guests with each one to talk about Emily and the show's effect on them, which is cool. So I would like to say, however, mm. that I resent the implication, if anyone <gasps> has made it somewhere nebulously, that I do not care about this show. <gasps> Um, which, I don't think anyone has, but <laughs> go ahead. I, I think I feel I feel like maybe someone might have um, because I'm very negative about it. But I would like to point out that I have put the hours in. That's true <laughs> on this show. So yeah, this just sounds like an abusive relationship. Now. <laughs> like, like, we wouldn't have. We we, we are incredibly critical. Look at how much I care. Look at how much time I put into this. No, but you think I would still be here if I didn't love you? Yeah, exactly. Look, Carl. I don't know how to have anything other than dysfunctional relationships. All right, like it's all I know. So that's how I do this. Anyway, I would assign loaves of bread if I didn't love. I'm not baking all that bread. (laughs) Why would I bake all that bread if I didn't love it? Um, my poor oven's been on for, for, for years I come here and I sit at my desk and I speak these words for you because I love you I need to stop I Kyle's need to stop. sweat and blood not mine but Kyle's sweat and blood Just, man, I have hit delirium it is 8.30 in the morning the rest of the day is shut Everyone, <laughs> love you, love you, and leave you. Love you and leave you. <laughs> <laughs>